So, you know, we watched hundreds and hundreds of full stories on this one interaction. Uh, and it was heartbreaking because you, know, you, you watch people struggle and it's, it just breaks your heart. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> All right. Well, today, welcome back to our podcast, um, which by the time you'll hear this, will have a name. Um, I'm Aaron May, and I'm here with John Henry. John Henry, and I'm also here with Kat Anderson, who's our second guest ever on our To Be Named podcast. Um, and she is a UX writer at AP Intigo. Uh, they're a small business insurance company. I'm sure she'll tell us all about it. Um, so yeah, UX writer, big job title these days, and excited to talk about what UX research looks like um, in her role there. So welcome, Kat. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about um, your kind of day-to-day at AP Intego and, and um, what being a UX writer is all about there. Yeah, how did you how did you get the title UX writer? I feel like that's like Aaron's dream role of writing <laughs> and UX, like check, check. Um, how did you find your way into that? Yeah, it was pure pure luck, actually, because I had been chasing after UX researcher jobs. Um, but I'd always, you know, writing had always been a huge part of pretty much every job I'd ever done. And, you know, something that I felt really, you know, comfortable with. Um, and I knew Stephanie from before, and she had joined as the first UX designer on the team at this company. And I was like, wow, aren't you scared to be the only one? She's like, nah, I got this. But um, uh, she, she just, didn't, you know, English is not her first language and she just didn't feel super comfortable writing the copy for the stuff that she was designing. And so a couple of months into her role, she said, hey, you guys, can we bring somebody on who can be more responsible for the actual written content on these products and these apps and, you know, the website and stuff. And so uh, that's how I got brought on. Um, so that's, I really kind of just lucked into it because I'd really been chasing user researcher roles. But um, because it was a new team and, and you know, UX design was kind of a new thing to the company in, in its totality, it was easy for me to kind of worm some user research into my role. And it's turned out to be something that, something that I was not expecting, which is uh, kind of a defining feature of how I envision myself uh, as a person on my team where I can't imagine doing UX writing without the research piece. And I don't really have a sense of how common or, or unusual that is across the industry uh, or across, you know, from UX writer to UX writer. But to me, it's, um, it's been the biggest and most pleasant surprise of this role. Awesome. It makes sense, right? Like, I think there's finally been this realization that to do design well, you need to talk to people and understand how they're interacting with it and where they're coming from. And I think kind of piggybacking on that is, I think we've started to acknowledge that copy and micro copy and all that stuff is, is a huge part of design and actually making sure people understand how to navigate through an app or an experience. 
And so the idea that you would need to do research to do that well, like it, you know, it fits perfectly when you actually like think about it from end to end. Yeah, it seems super, super logical. And, um, you know, I think that it's, there's a, there's a few different ways that you can go with like UX writing. I mean, you know, when you type in, when you Google UX writing and a, a thousand million things pop up and, you know, they're all, almost all of them focus on the actual craft of UX writing. So it's a lot of stuff about like best practices, how to go about it, why it's important, that sort of a thing. And what I don't see a lot of is um, articles or information about, well, how do you know what the right approach is to get there? How do you know what your users need? How do you know what their mental models are? How do you know what they expect? if you haven't actually done the research. And, you know, I think in a lot of companies, the, there's a dedicated UX research team who might supply that, uh, that information that the UX writer can then, you know, put into practice in the actual craft of writing um, interface designs or whatever, but, or microcopy, but um, in a team as small and as scrappy as ours, I think it's worked extraordinarily well for me to just have my own hands in the research and sort of guide some of that research design so that I can make sure that I'm getting what I need from the users to craft that content that's going to be the most helpful and useful for them. Yeah, for sure. I think um, as someone who's had a variety of different kind of editing, writing, managing editors and writers, sorts of roles, I think one of the things you see happen a lot with these kind of UX copy kinds of um, request is we have this email, we need to make it sound better. Or, um, you know, this page isn't converting good enough. Let's make the copy better. It's like, okay, well, but what's the user trying to accomplish? Um, but it sounds like you're a small, smallish team. I mean, we're growing, you know, that's one of the nice, you know, we're as our, um, company grows, our team is growing right along with it. So there's, um, you know, we're really one of the lucky ones in that we have, buy-in throughout the entire company uh, for UX research and UX design. They're like our managing directors are extraordinarily supportive and, you know, they give us pretty wide latitude, which is awesome. You know, they gave us permission to test a prototype that was so early in its stages that it didn't even have a UI yet. And they're like, yeah, go test that out. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, we need to know if it works. (laughs) And I was like, that's awesome, you guys. Um, And it's it's a pretty flat hierarchy. We're not super siloed. So we're allowed to kind of free range around the company and talk to whoever we want to talk to and tap into subject matter experts uh, on any of the other teams. And we do that quite frequently because uh, insurance, uh, you know, newsflash, it's a pretty complex and irritating field to understand for most people. You know, most people don't want to understand And that's actually one of the hardest parts of my job is understanding the fine line to walk between giving people enough information so that they can make good choices and, and, you know, feel like they're well informed, but not overloading them with a bunch of stuff that they don't actually need to understand in order to make a good choice. That's so great. I feel like we hear this a lot still that people who are in organizations where they really support research and talking to users, it still is driven so much by somebody at the top who believes in it and kind of pushes it through and I'm sure we'll have a future episode about how to do it more from the bottoms up and evangelize, but uh, nice to hear that you're in a good, open and supportive environment. Um, It sounds like that freedom has led to some pretty creative approaches about how you go about research, right? Um, 
I know one thing we wanted to dive into was kind of how you pair uh, quantitative research and qualitative research together sometimes. Is that something planned or is it something that happens organically? It's both. Um, So, you know, I did come from a social science anthropology background. So I had like official training in research design and that sort of thing. Um, So, you know, I do bring that to bear sometimes when we're, you know, tackling a major problem. Uh, So, for example, we... Uh, a few months ago, finished up a, a giant research round on cyber security and cyber insurance. Um, and that is, you know, it, as far as insurance products go, it's pretty new and there's not a lot out there that's known about it. So there's not actually a lot of data to pull from. Um, and as we're trying to develop products that actually fit user needs and user mental models, we were really starting from zero. And, you know, they approached me to say, what, you know, how can we design uh, some research to, uh, you know, find out some of the answers to these questions? We don't even know what we don't know. So what I did there was I, I laid out the whole idea for the research from the outset. And so I started out with a qualitative round that was just super open ended because we didn't know what people knew. We just didn't have any idea where to, where to even start. And so it was just, you know, tapping small business owners to talk about cyber security and cyber insurance for an hour. And it was really as open-ended as that. And, you know, I had questions that I wanted to ask them and questions that I asked each of them, but it was really, really open-ended. And from there, we uh, found some really interesting insights so, for example, uh, I, something I called the Experian effect, which is this idea that because there have been so many massive data breaches, there's this mental model that people have where um, it only happens to the big guys. But even if it does happen to me, it doesn't matter because everybody already knows everything about everybody already. Right. It's like, you know, well, after the Experian hack or the Target hack, all my stuff's out there in the world anyway. And it doesn't really matter what happens to my business because I don't have anything that hackers don't already have. You know, that was a really interesting insight. You know, we were able to use that insight about the Experian effect um, to craft the questions on the survey that would either, you know, validate that at a statistically statistically significant level or invalidated as just a, you know, hey, you talk to five or eight people and they said this, but, you know, what does it actually mean? And so that was an example of how we were able to use something that we were totally not, you know, we didn't set out to, you know, find out about that specifically, but it was one of the things that came out as a pattern from our qualitative research that we then baked into our quantitative round. And now it's something that we kind of incorporate into a lot of other research initiatives that we have, because we know that this is something that is a a prevailing mental model out there when it comes to cybersecurity. Um, So that's, that's been pretty interesting. Um, But then there are times when um, it's the opposite and we use quantitative to inform our qualitative round. So um, an example of that is when we draw from full stories, um, you know, uh, the platform where you can record the screen uh, as somebody's using your app or your, your website. So, you know, we watched hundreds and hundreds of full stories on this one interaction 
and th- it was heartbreaking because you, know, <laughs> you you watch people struggle and it's it just breaks your heart. And so, you know, after watching hundreds of people struggle on this one interaction, we were then able to design a qualitative research round that really put it into a more holistic perspective and context for us. Like, why? Why? is this a difficult step for you? Oh, well, it's because of, you know, all these other things that are happening around it in a small business owner's life or in a small business owner's journey. And so that was an example of, you know, the qualitative informing the, I'm sorry, the quantitative informing the qualitative. And then there's um, just a whole lot of complex interplay once again uh, between those moving forward as we do, you know, new rounds of research. So love, love both of those examples. Uh, One question I have is, you know, given kind of one study flowing into another and how much they can kind of complement and give you a full story, a full picture of what's really going on. How do you plan for that? You know, from a budget perspective, Mm. um, resources, whatever you might kind of want to know ahead of time. Um, do you just assume qual is going to lead to quant and vice versa? Um, how do you kind of plan your research um, given that one thing might lead into another? Yeah, it's pretty hard to, you know, to plan it, to be honest. I mean, it, it's definitely one of the challenges uh, that we face here. Um, I think it's, it, it's always about like matching the method to what you're trying to discover So, you know, if we really are starting from scratch and we don't know much at all about a certain phenomenon or a certain category or an industry or something, you, my, my inclination is always to start out with qualitative. And the nice thing about qualitative is that you can learn a lot in a short amount of time talking to a small number of people. And, um, you can do it kind of on the cheap, you know, if you recruit from your own, uh, book of business or your own pool of users, um, it can be pretty cost effective to just talk to five people um, and start to see some patterns. And I mean, you know, I get a lot of questions, especially from my, you know, social science friends sometimes about, you know, is five people really enough? And it's sort of amazing how quickly patterns can emerge when you're drilling down on like a, a specific topic um, it's pretty amazing how quickly you can, you know, come to see some patterns in how people respond or the problems that people face. Um, you know, if you don't, that's fine too. It's, you know, that's what qualitative research can be really good at also is like teasing out the difference between, you know, a pattern or just a one-off, uh, you know, like an anecdotal, um, problem that one person faced, or it's just not a widespread issue for people. Um, but then, you know, that leaving it open-ended like that really opens you up to, like, you don't know what you're going to find. And that's what makes it so hard to plan out, um, is because with a qualitative round, you might discover something that you were not expecting at all. And then um, if you want to use that to go into your quantitative, um, to validate what you learned in your qualitative, that's fine. But, um, you know, when you get into quantitative, you really start to have questions about whether you want it to be statistically significant. And if you're doing that in a survey format or an A-B test or something, that can get a little pricey. And so from a budgetary standpoint, um, it can be super tricky and you kind of have to 
be scrappy sometimes and, you know, just put out a survey on UX mastery uh, Slack channel or, you know, put it out on Twitter and see what you get back. And it's not ideal, but it might still give you something that you can use to move your team forward and then maybe, you know, use that as a stepping stone to something a little bit more robust. Keep it discovery style, a little more open-ended to see what trends you find and then use those in the quantitative uh, next step. If you're going the other way and starting with quantitative and you know you're likely going to follow it up with a qualitative round, Mm -hmm. will you do anything differently in the quantitative step knowing that you have qualitative coming later? Or is it still kind of like just run the survey and then maybe we'll cherry pick a few people to speak to? Or um, does that make sense? Like, would you do it if it was in isolation, you do it one way, but when it's going to be paired with something else, you do it differently? Or is it kind of the same across the board? It it really depends. Uh, So like, for example, the quantitative, um, you know, full story research, we didn't really know what we were going to find. So we just set the thing up and then just watched a bunch to see what emerged as a pattern. So it was like qualitative in that sense that we really didn't know what we were going to get. You know, another example would be, um, you know, conducting research based off of NPS surveying, um, where, you know, it's, it's such a, cold, hard number they're staring at you from the page when you're looking at something like MPS scores that um, it when you use that to take a deeper dive in your qualitative, um, it, it still was sort of a surprise. Like you still didn't know exactly what you were going to get because um, the, the quantitative wasn't contextualized. So it, it but then if you're like designing a survey, and starting with quantitative in that regard, then yeah, I would say that there's a sort of a, a similar thing where, you know, you, with a quantitative survey that you're just putting out there, you start with a hypothesis, you check to see if it's validated. And then, you know, if it is or it isn't, or whatever result you get out of the quantitative, you can bring that to, into your qualitative instrument and, or, you know, decide what qualitative method you want to employ at that point? Like, is it a question about usability? In that case, you might want to set up an unmoderated uh, user test. If it's a question about mental models or customer journey or anything like that, you're probably going to want to do like a moderated interview. When do you say um, this study is done? We've learned enough. (laughs) We're going to move on to the next thing. Oh, Aaron, that's so funny that you say that um, because that's a big question that we've, we've had um, here. I mean, you know, in a certain sense, it's, it's kind of a cop out to say, okay, I've structured out my research. I've planned it all out. Like I did for the cyber research, for example, I'm doing some qualitative to get, get the ball rolling. Then we're going to move it into quantitative and there's going to be some analysis and then we're going to present the final results. And that's going to inform a bunch of different teams at our company as to how to move forward. And that's the beautiful plan in everybody's mind. And then, you know, in terms of how it actually plays out, uh, I think if you wrap up a round of research that includes qualitative, quantitative, and it's, you know, on a fairly large scale, and you've wrapped it all up neatly with a bow at the end, God love you. You're better at this than 99.9% of user researchers out there. I mean, I think there's always going to be questions left on the table. And this is part of what's so exciting about allowing 
qualitative to flow into quantitative and vice versa, because I see the way that the research that we did for cyber has influenced the research that we've done for other products as well. Um, so can I say that I that the, the cyber research is finished? Well, I did the final presentation. So in a certain sense, yes, yes, it is. It's all wrapped up. It's all good to go. But I mean, you know, did we have 10 million other questions at the end of that research? We sure did. And so, you know, what we've done is we've kind of, we had to close the, we had to close the door on that specific research round because of time constraints and bandwidth and all kinds of other things. But, you know, there was always, I think, this understanding that we were going to carry it forward in other ways. And it's very amorphous, uh, to be honest. It's not anything that I can definitively point to and say, oh, yes, well, you know, we asked this question because of what we learned in this survey. It's not that neat and tidy, but I think that there is tremendous value in allowing your team to have the kind of freedom to, you know, carry the research forward in other directions and in other research rounds, you know, either formally or informally, because it's never really done. It's never really done. The way, the way I like to describe it is you have long periods of humility of like, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And then you pair it with moments of decisiveness of just being like, all right, let's do this. And then you're right back to being like, we don't know, we don't know. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like you, at some point you do have to make decisions, but the majority of the time is spent trying to figure stuff out and, and learn it as best you can. But every once in a while you, you pick it, you know, put a stake in the ground, move forward and then, you know, come back to it and continue learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's really, I, mean, I think that's the best that any of us can hope for really, because, um, you know, at a certain point you do have to take action. You can't just stay in the research phase forever. You know, the, these, the, the research that you do has to be in service of some sort of, you know, progress, or, you know, at least some sort of, you know, forward movement in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. But um, yeah, I like the way you described it as sort of like punctuated equilibrium. It's like, you know, ah, okay, okay, ah. And then you just keep, keep doing that pattern until something good comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, we pretty much make every decision in our lives based off of imperfect information, right? So at some point you have to get comfortable with uh, yeah, no Yep. <laughs> That's truer words were never spoken. Um, anything else um, you want to get off your chest or? <laughs> um, the most important thing that you can do in user research is match the right. Well, first of all, you want to make sure that you're asking good questions. You know, I, this idea of the, the right question, like, okay, you know, maybe in some cases, really specific cases, there is such a thing as a right question or a wrong question. Most importantly, you just want to be asking questions um, and you want to be able to match the method to the information that you want to learn. And so, you know, it's always got to be some sort of a complex interplay between qualitative and quantitative. It's like nature and nurture, you know, like there are, there's always going to be, um, you know, it can tilt to one side or tilt to the other side, but at the end, if you really want to know something, you kind of have to include the spectrum of ways of knowing about it. And so to me, the, the research is really about that. It's about learning. It's about figuring out, really drilling down and 
you know, introspecting about what it is that we want to learn and then finding the right people and the right instrument to get at what it is that we're trying to know. Um, so that's really how I see qualitative and quantitative playing together. It's like it's always going to be a tension between them. It's always going to sway to one side or the other side, depending on what we're trying to, to learn. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's really got to be a little of both, at least. I like that. Something we didn't talk about a lot was um, like methods, right? We talked about interviews. We talked about surveys. There are, you know, a dozen more at least. Um, we talked a little about A-B testing. How have you figured out over the course of your career what method to match to what question? Um, yeah. Certainly there are resources out there that, um, you know, address that question, such as the field guide, which you can find at userinterviews.com. Um, always plug, always plug. <laughs> but no, it, you know, is, is it something you get a feel from, from experience? How do you, how do you figure out um, what method to use for what thing? Yeah, I mean, it really, I think it, it boils down to, do you, are you trying to learn something about people or are you trying to validate an idea? I think that's, I don't know, maybe that's too simplistic of a dichotomy, but for me, it often kind of comes down to that where I, you know, am I really just trying to learn about people's lives and how they think about things? In which case I'm probably going to start at least with qualitative. Um, or am I trying to like validate something? Am I trying to put something out into the world and see what people's reactions to it is? In which case I'll probably start with quantitative. And, you know, of course there are going to be all kinds of, um, you know, scenarios in which that would not be the case. But I would say, generally speaking, you just kind of start off from there. Like, do we know anything about this already? Okay, what do we know? And then from there, you decide, like, do I really need to know more about the context around something before I, I, I go forward? Or do I already know enough about something where it's time to just put something out into the world and see how people react to it and gauge what I want to learn from that. So I heard that you guys in your first podcast talked about the, um, the desirability of remote testing. And I want to like throw down and say two enthusiastic thumbs up for remote user testing, because uh, I think that it is a fantastic, like super useful way to access populations that you would never have access to. I mean, you know, we're on the East Coast here. You know, I don't want to just talk to East Coast people. When I have a day where I can talk to, you know, Mark, the guy who sells janitorial supplies uh, in the Ozarks, that is like my best day because when would I ever, ever get a chance to talk to that guy under other circumstances? It's only because of this awesome job that I get to talk to that guy and learn about his life and learn about his, you know, pain points when purchasing business insurance for his janitorial supplies company. And, uh, you know, and then my job is to take what I've learned from that guy and help him and help it be better for him. And so that to me is just the best thing. Um, so it's, Using the method is really just about you know, the, the remoteness of the interview or the user test allows me access to that population. So that's another whole, that's probably just a whole other topic <laughs> for a different for sure. podcast. But, um, you know, 
that's why I'm really a fan of the remote stuff because you you can access so many more people. And I don't think that you lose anything really. Under most circumstances, you don't really lose anything by testing somebody in their natural environment as opposed to bringing them into like a, a lab. So. For sure. I like that. Uh, I like that you proved that you actually listened to the first episode. That was pretty deep in there too. So that's a, a good reference. Uh, I was just going to say on the, uh, like, what's the right tool for the job question. I think there's a part of me that almost thinks that's like an overly reductive question, right? Yeah. If I want to drive a nail into this piece of wood. So it's a hammer. I want to cut the wood. So it's a saw, but it's like, well, what if I want to build a house? It's like, then you need a bunch of tools. And I think what you've been telling us and describing throughout the conversation is, you know, how to combine tools to get to outcomes. And I think that's like actually the much more interesting piece of this. It's pretty mm -hmm. quick and simple to learn, you know, what tools are good for what, but like the, the skill of using tools in a combined way, I think leads to much more powerful outcomes. And, and hopefully that's something that will kind of, you know, grow and people will think about more. Totally agree. Totally. Could not agree more. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. I'm gonna do. I'm doing the video for the hello again. I don't know what your situation is. You're gonna do the video. Um, I will do the video hello as well. Are you, are you in the closet room again?